such a joy, um, an honor and a privilege to be here with you all. Thank you for having me. Very grateful for this opportunity. Uh, if you have your Bibles, can you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. And we'll be looking at a lot of passages, not just this passage. So you'll, you'll be doing a lot of work with me this morning. It's a very familiar passage. Um, unfortunately, often very misused and abused, taken out of context, but very beautiful. I've preached it a couple of times, and every time I preach, I'm, I'm encouraged myself and challenged. So if you've opened it to Matthew chapter, I'm, I'm reading from ESV, um, the anglicized version, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Of which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. Lord, have mercy on us as we look into your word. Open our eyes. Expose our sins, Lord. Show us the need of Jesus Christ. God, the Spirit, help us. Help us to see who God is. God, we pray that you'd be honored and lifted high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if, if I could summarize what I'm trying to say this morning in one sentence, then that would be, it would be, true believers, pray to God, true believers, pray to God the Father, knowing that he provides all good things. It's very simple. I mean, it's obvious. It's about prayer. And Christians, believers, will pray, will pray to God, must pray to God, and they pray to God who is their Father, but they pray in, a, in this confidence, knowing that He will provide, and He does provide all good things for His people. So true believers pray to God, to God the Father, knowing that He provides all good things. But in order to understand uh, chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, what I'm going to do with you is go back to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'll start from there. And from there, we'll work our way up to Matthew chapter 7. So it's, it'll be a lot of work. So what happens in Matthew, in this, the gospel of Matthew, the writer Matthew presents Jesus as the king. So if you see in verse 1, it's very clear. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And it's very intentional. If you study Matthew, it becomes very clear. It becomes very obvious and apparent that Jesus is being presented as the Davidic king, the promised king in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. Uh, God had made a promise, a covenant with David, 
that he will give him his, his kingdom will last forever. His kingdom will be established forever. His throne will be forever. And Matthew basically is picking up on that theme and he's presenting Jesus as the king. And it's important for us to understand what's going on in Matthew before we come to chapter 7, verse 12 onwards, uh, 7 onwards. So in Matthew chapter 1, we see Jesus um, being presented as the son of David. And right after that, in chapter 2, in chapter 2, you see the wise men. The wise men come and they worship Jesus. Why? Again, he is the king. He's the king of Jews, so the king of Israel. The king, uh, the Davidic king has come. And then in chapter 3, right in the beginning, chapter 3, verse 1, you have John the Baptist uh, preaching in the wilderness. And what he preaches in verse 2 of chapter 3 is very telling. It's very important for us. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist goes around preaching and he says, Repent. So turn from your sins. Turn from your old ways. Turn to God. Um, There's a clear U-turn, a change in lifestyle, a change of heart, a change in lifestyle. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew, when he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, it's just another way of saying kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is at hand in another sense. The kingdom of God is near. Why is the kingdom of God near? Because the king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand, is near, because the king, who is this king? This king, Jesus, who is the Davidic king. But what is, so he is, he's the king who is Davidic king, but what is more special about him in chapter 3 in verses 13 to 17, we see God himself, God the Father himself, affirms him and calls him as his son. So in verse 17, after his baptism, and we know these passages, we all are familiar, um, I'm assuming a lot of us would be familiar if you've been um, uh, to, 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 to a church for quite some time, chapter 3, verses 7, verse 17, it says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he's the Davidic king. Um, as promised in uh, Samuel to David, um, uh, the one who will come on his throne. He is the king of Jews, the king of Israel, but he is also the, uh, the son of God. And for him, a forerunner, John the Baptist, has come and prepared the way. And then later on, after Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus goes through the temptation in chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus starts his ministry. So here is the king, he, the, the Davidic king, the son of God, starts his ministry. The one who has ushered in his kingdom. He has brought in his kingdom. He, has, uh, he, brings, he, he is the king, he brings in his kingdom. And what does he say in chapter 4, verse 17? From that time, Jesus began to preach. And what does he preach? The very same thing. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you see that? So the kingdom is here. The king is here. Therefore, you need to repent. So in other words, if you want to be part of this kingdom, if you want to do anything with this kingdom, you need to submit to this king. You need to pay allegiance to this king. You must follow this king. And only that way you'll be part of this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God. 
That's why in chapter 4, verses 23 onwards, Jesus, he is the king. He, he, he ushers in his kingdom. He brings in his kingdom. He has inaugurated this kingdom in verses three on, 23 onwards. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of this kingdom. Who is this king? How can you be part of this kingdom and healing every disease? And after that, in chapter 5, from chapter 5 to chapter 8, we have this big section known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 1, to chapter 8, verse 1. So the Sermon on the Mount, basically, which is where our text is situated today, is, is in a sense, the king is uh, laying out the principles uh, for his, his subjects for his people, for his disciples, how to live and behave in the kingdom. Basically, Sermon on the Mount is, is, a, is basically just telling them very clearly. It, it, it's making them very clear how do you behave in his kingdom? How do, how do you live in this kingdom? This is what the Sermon on the Mount does. And if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it, uh, there are a lot of imperatives there are a lot of commands. There are a lot of expectations. I mean, and it's, it's heavy. And it's difficult. And if, if, you, if you take it seriously, if you look at the whole um, Sermon on the Mount, the expectations on the disciples is huge. And some people just give up, put up their hands, and they say, well, this is for elite, some specific special kind of Christians or special kind of disciples. It has nothing to do with me. But the context makes it very clear. He, Jesus is particularly, specifically talking to his people. So chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the king, while the people from the outside are looking in, people, everyone, uh, they, they have the opportunity to hear in. They, they can see and hear what this king has to say, but he is particularly, specifically, primarily speaking to his people, to his disciples, to those who are part of his kingdom. So Matthew, looking back in, writes it in this manner. So that's our verse, chapter 5, verse 1 is very important. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. They came near to him. And just like a Jewish rabbi, in verse 2, he opens his mouth and he speaks and he teaches them. And in chapter 5, verses 2 to 12, the section that we have is, is known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And again, very important. The context is very important. The Beatitudes help us to understand and see and know that the Sermon on the Mount is not some legalistic document. It's not there to just tell us, do this, do this, behave like this, and therefore you can become part of the kingdom. But the Beatitudes make it very clear that the Sermon on the Mount lays um, demands from people who are already part of the kingdom. And before Jesus goes on to, 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 uh, to clarify or asks or tells them how they must live, Jesus pronounces blessings upon them. And that's what these Beatitudes are, eight Beatitudes. And he basically says, you are blessed the word there, it, it, in a sense, means happy, uh, privileged. Um, God's favor rests upon you. So it's not a generic blessing for everyone and anyone who's listening. 
It's not for people who are outside the kingdom, but it is for those who are within the kingdom, those who belong to the king, those who submit to the king, those who follow this king, those who have repented from their old ways, those who have turned away from the sinful life, who have, who have said, king, have mercy on me. It is to those people, it is to those disciples, Jesus pronounces blessings in chapter 5, verses 2 to 12. And these blessings, these beatitudes, the happy sayings are absolutely beautiful. The first thing in verse 3, it says, uh, happy are the poor in spirit. Those who understand that they are spiritually bankrupt. Those who know that they, uh, they, they cannot, in their own ability, do anything. They, they need God. They are poor in spirit. In verse 4, which is the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for what? Mourn over their sins, their spiritual bankruptcy. Mourn for sin around them, in their community, in their society. Uh, verse 5, number 3, blessed are the meek. They are humble people because they know who they really are. They know their, their standing before God. There's no place for pride, overconfidence. Uh, they know that they have a true estimate of themselves. And these, guys, these people are blessed. They are disciples of Jesus Christ. They're, they're followers of this, this king. Number four in verse six, they hunger for righteousness. They know that they do not have a, a righteousness in and of themselves. They need it from, from the king. The king provides it to them for free. It's, it's the righteousness that they do not have, but because it's been imputed, given to them, therefore now they live a life of righteousness. And number, number five, verse seven, they show mercy on others. They're not judgmental. They're not hypocrites. hypocrites. They do not have different standards for different people. That's why in num verse eight, number six, they have a pure heart. They have a new heart, heart given by this king. Verse 9, number 7, they go out uh, making peace, helping people have peace, peace between God and man, and between men, between people in the community. In verse 10, number 8, in spite of all this lifestyle, they would, would be persecuted. And when they are persecuted, Jesus says, you are blessed, you are happy. And it's important for us to think about these Beatitudes very quickly before we get into the, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So basically, Jesus is saying, you belong to me. You are my people. You are my disciples. You are blessed. You are happy. God's favor rests upon you. You are chosen. You are now in the kingdom. You are my people. You are blessed. Therefore, now live a different life. Therefore, now reflect who you should be. Therefore, show it very clearly. And that is why one after another from chapter 5, verse 13 onwards, we just start seeing things about a disciple that is expected how he or she must live. In verses 13 to 16, there are two things, the salt and the light. The salt and the, you are a disciple. You're part of the kingdom. You have said, uh, you have repented from your sins. You've turned away from the ways of this world. And now, you, because you're part of the kingdom, you must live like the salt and the light. So salt is useful if it is salty. Light is useful if it gives out light. If salt doesn't do the work of being the salt, it's of no use. 
If light doesn't give out light, it's of no use. So if you're a disciple and you don't live the life of a disciple, then you're of no use. If you're a follower of Christ, but you do not live like a follower of Christ, then you're of no use. That's what basically Jesus is saying. Without having to get into the details and specifics of what the salt does or the light and things, it basically is saying, Jesus is saying, you must be different. Your life must be, be, be totally committed. It's not on the fence. It's, it's, it's a life that you, you have, you, you, you're committed to this thing. You give everything for this thing. You, you, you're not compromising. You can't say, maybe, sometimes, perhaps, if things go okay. No. Basically, chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus expects his disciples to live a life of perfection. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You know, he's speaking to his people. So on one hand, they are in the kingdom. But on the other hand, Jesus tells him, do you understand what it means to be in the kingdom? Do you understand what it means to be my disciples? You can't just say, oh, I'm a Christian or I'm a disciple. I can live as I want to. Because I prayed a prayer many years ago. Because I go to church and I do my part. Because I've given enough money. Well, I've done my bit. Now it's my life. Well, surely I can do what I want to do with my life. No, Jesus says, well, come on. You are my disciple. I am the son of this, this king, God, who is the creator of this universe. And my father, who is also your father, expects you to live a life of perfection. Now, can you imagine the disciples sitting there and hearing these words? Oh, he, he's very strict. He's unrealistic. It doesn't work like this. This is modern error. I mean, for them, they were in their modern era. I mean, that's what they're thinking. What, is, what does this guy think about himself? Does he really, does he really mean what he's speaking? Well, Jesus says, yeah, let me tell you what it does mean to be perfect. And then he goes on to just list things after things that exposes the disciples and the hearers. And you and I, our hearts are pierced as we look at this passage. So we come up with various defense mechanisms. We say, hey, it's for, it's for, it's for people, those who live in the monasteries, for monks and nuns, maybe. Or maybe you're just talking about some idealistic life of a disciple. It's, um, it's the expected thing. It's a standard, but not necessarily. Jesus knows that we, we can't live this way. God knows, God knows who we are. And I mean, there's some truth to it, but that's, that can't be an excuse. What does Jesus say here in verses 21 onwards, chapter 5, verse 21 onwards? He says, basically, perfection means you have to pursue reconciliation in difficult relationships. I mean, he, he, when he talks about holiness, perfection, the first thing Jesus thinks of is, is how you relate to one another, interpersonal relationships. 
Isn't this where most of us find it very difficult to live out a Christian life? I mean, singing songs is great. Hymns are great. Loving Christ in songs is great, but loving the other brothers and sisters, especially when you feel that you've been wronged by that person. I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus is saying. Kingdom principles, come on, you are, you, you are my disciple. You want to live for me? You want to serve me? You want to worship me? You say, Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are my king means reconcile with your brother and your sister. Verse 24, first be reconciled to your brother. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into the specifics, but that's what Jesus is saying. In verses 27 to 30, Jesus says, well, be perfect. What does it mean? Pursue purity. Pursue purity in thought, word, and deed. I mean, there's, there's no room for it. just a little bit here and there. Come on. It's, it's human to err. We all make mistakes. I was talking to a few, um, a few Muslim evangelists in India a few years ago, and, and I was trying to press them on this this idea of God's holiness and our inability and our, and our lack of, you know, we don't match up to God's standards. And their answer was, yeah, we, we and I was trying to say, hey, do you not see that we, we sin? And they just come back, look at me and say, no, we don't sin. We make mistakes. And a lot of Christians, evangelicals think similarly. We downplay sin by changing it into just mistakes. It was a mistake. Verse 27 to 30, Jesus is serious about purity, of sexual purity. He says, go to extreme length, whatever you need to do. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, pursue faithfulness in marriage. Stay faithful to your spouse. In verses 33 to 37, Jesus says, pursue truthfulness in speech. When you are with people, you let your yes be yes. Let people know what you say and what you mean. And then in verses 38 to verse 42, Jesus says, Pursue kindness and generosity even, even in extreme scenarios to extreme measures. I mean, it's very, it's, I was just thinking about this early this morning. And verses 38 on, it's very difficult. I mean, this seems like injustice. It seems like, come on. In verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It doesn't do well with the modern thinking, right? It's my right. It's my life. It's my, my property. It's my space, my time. This belongs to me. I'm the owner. How dare you? Like, I mean, Jesus probably didn't know about these things, right? <laughs> Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. How does it work? In 2022, how does it work? I mean, uh, Jesus wasn't exaggerating, or Jesus wasn't just saying good things. That's what Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says. 
Why, chapter 6, verse 7, he says, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's talking to believers in the context of the local church. I mean, the standards, expectations from believers is very high. And I want us to feel the weight of it. And I want us to understand and think, if you are taking discipleship serious, if you are thinking seriously about the kingdom, kingdom living is not easy. Nominal kingdom living is super easy. Normal Christianity in India is very easy. I can be a nominal Christian in India without having any problems. Actually, Indians would love me for being a religious person. They'll say, well, you have your faith and you are a very religious man. You're a good man because you think about God and you speak about God and you worship God. You are a righteous man. And I'd get a lot of accolades and praises from people. Being a nominal Christian, it's not a problem. But it's when you become very serious I've heard so many parents say to their young children, even Christians in India, it's fine, it's fine, just don't take your faith too seriously. Just don't go crazy about it. But it seems like Jesus is saying something else to us here. The Sermon on the Mount is for regular, everyday mother and father, single men and women, Young children, different phases of life, different stages of life, but those who want to be in the kingdom. It is to them in verses 43 to 47, Jesus says, pursue your enemies in love. Those who do you wrong, you love them. And why must he do that? Jesus comes back. What he said in verse 20, chapter 5, he says that in verse 48 again, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh my gosh, Jesus, this is too much. This is too difficult. I must love my enemies. How can I do that? I can't love my siblings. I can love, I find it difficult to love my own family at times. No, but this is what is expected of us. All right, okay, okay, fine, fine. Do you want me to live a certain kind of life? In chapter 6, then Jesus very quickly addresses um, the various areas of piety. So back in those days, Jewish piety was, was demonstrated primarily in three ways. In, in, uh, in giving, in fasting, and in praying. When Jesus is saying these things, there are a lot of people sitting there, well, Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah I understand what you're talking about, uh, righteousness. We do it. I live a righteous life. I live a righteous I give. I give regularly. I fast, I fast regularly, and I pray, and I pray regularly. And Jesus is a wise teacher. Of course, he's God, God-man. That's why in chapter 6, while he, he puts a lot of premium on obedience and a certain lifestyle, Jesus very quickly comes in chapter 6 and says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I mean, isn't that your problem and my problem? Isn't this where Indians and Americans are alike? Of course, we want to live according to kingdom principles, as long as people know that I'm living according to kingdom principles. Of course. I want to be recognized by people. 
It's of no good. It's of no use if I, if I just work hard and, and just sacrifice and, and live a life of piety. But nobody knows that. But Jesus in chapter 6 basically decimates that. On one hand, yes, a high standard, a high living. Please, you must, you should. But on the other hand, the right attitude. It's about the heart. It's about what's within. It's, it's the, um, the reason, the motivation. Why do you want to do what you are doing? Is it because you truly honor this king? You love this king? You worship this king? Are you enjoy this position, this place in the society? The honor that you get from people around you. And we all, we all struggle with this in different ways, in different manners. That's the problem with sin. You know, sin, what it does, it takes good things and twists it. Good things and messes it up. I mean, praying, fasting, giving, how can this be a bad thing? How can these things be bad? They're good things. I mean, coming to church, tithing, a missions work, good things. Preaching, good thing. But yet, somehow, sin has its way. And would mess it up. But Jesus says, well, be careful. Be careful. Don't do it so that people may say, don't just give. Don't be generous because you can impress people. Then in chapter 6, verse 19 onwards, all right, then I don't have to give. I'll just keep it for myself. When nobody will know, why should I give? I'll just save it for my future generations. But he says, No. I mean, he wouldn't let you do this. He wouldn't let us get away with it. You know, we are like that drunk man, as I think, I think Luther said then. We try to get on the horse from one side, we fall on the other side. <laughs> then you just somehow, you like muster some strength, and then you get up on it, and then you fall on the other side. And Jesus can see that. This is, he's the master teacher. He, he's the best um, preacher ever. That's why he comes in verse 19 on where he says, well, well. Just because I said your giving shouldn't be for the purpose of impressing people doesn't mean you can stash it away. No. Instead, invest in the kingdom for the kingdom. Give it away. The way you invest is by giving away. Because you, you, you must be very clear. Who is your master? Who are you going to serve? But if I give away everything... Or if I, I don't save for, I mean, unforeseen circumstances. And a lot of people worry about a lot of different things. I mean, a lot of different things. I remember as soon as war broke out in Ukraine, people in India were panicking. And I understand to some extent. And, and people were like just trying to buy stuff and keep away. And I think you guys know a little bit about that. Like people store things for months and years of, for, for various problems, potential catastrophes that might happen. And Jesus is basically saying, do not be anxious. I mean, yes, you work hard. Yes, you have money. Yes, you save. Yes, you have these means and resources. But these means and resources are for the sake of the kingdom. You use it so that the kingdom expands. You use it for the glory of God. You use it for your master. You serve your true master. Not the money, the resources, the, the, uh, the wealth is not your master. You trust God. You trust God for provision, verses 25 to 34 in chapter 6. Okay, so you don't give away to show off. 
You don't even like try to keep it all to yourselves, but you actually give it out. You, you invest. And when you give out, you trust God will provide for you. He will provide for you. Don't be like, like those who are the Gentiles. Don't be like those who, who are anxious for these little things. And chapter 6, verse 33, a very famous verse taken out of context often where Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God. You seek the kingdom of God. I mean, how do you seek the kingdom of God? By living the life of a disciple. By being the salt, by being the light in the kingdom. So you seek the kingdom of God. How? By practicing these acts of piety for true reasons. Your ambition is right. Your heart is in the right place. It is for the honor of God, for the glory of God. It is not for your honor. So you give, you pray, you fast. Any acts of piety is for his glory. And you trust him that he will provide for you. But what will he provide for you? Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. What things? Basic food. Basic clothing. Basic shelter. And I've, I've preached this uh, with, uh, among the poorest people in my country. And I've said, has God not been faithful? Who here can say, no, well, actually, no, I've... Outside exceptional circumstances, the Lord in his goodness provides for his people. So what must we do? We must engage in the work of the kingdom. Not for the praise of men, for the praise of God, for his glory. But the problem is, okay, I will, I, I, I will trust God for provision. I will trust him. I will not be anxious. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give away things. I'm going to invest in missions. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to live a life of righteousness. I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'll do everything to be the salt and to be the light. But look at that person over there. He's not like that. Pastor Brad has been preaching so hard, and yet it doesn't make sense to this person. And what do we do? We start looking at others. Instead of thinking about ourselves, we spend time, energy, effort, emotions, thinking about the other people in the wrong way. And that's why Jesus in chapter 7, verse 1 says, judge not. Do not worry about other people's righteousness, standards of righteousness, where they are failing or they're succeeding for the, wrong, for the wrong motives, for wrong reasons. Think about yourself. Think about your own life. First, focus on your own life. Of course, it doesn't mean that we never speak into the lives of one another. But what it means is, is Jesus basically wants to reject there is no place for uncharitable, mean judgmentalism in the kingdom of God. Among the people of God, among the disciples who are part of the kingdom. All right, okay, so I need to not judge anyone. Well, that's okay then. Everyone is fine. Everyone is okay. He's okay. She's okay. The guy who preaches false theology is okay. After all, he's doing the work of the kingdom. The guy who preaches um, outside the Bible. I mean, people who live life of licentiousness. Uh, 
I, that's all right. Let's just, let's just be kind. Let's not judge anyone. Let's just get along with one another. Well, Jesus says in verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Jesus, he is judging. What Jesus means to say is, well, use wisdom. Be discerning. Don't abandon critical thinking. God has given us some mental faculties to know what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is not so good, what is beneficial, what is not so beneficial, what is error and what is not error. It is your responsibility, it is my responsibility as the, as the disciples in the kingdom to do these things, but we do it in a kind spirit. That is why by the time we come to chapter 7, verse 7, it, is, it just feels like I don't think I can do all these things, Lord. It is so difficult. I don't know when I'll be, I'll be in error. I want to be kind to these people, but I seem to compromise. But when I seem to point out things in their life, I end up being too harsh. I end up being too critical. I want to be generous. I want to, I want to live, practice life of righteousness, but I end up just doing it to impress people, Lord. Lord, I want to give away money, but then when I give away money, then I tr worry too much about money. Then I don't trust that you would provide for my needs, for my children's provision. I don't trust you, Lord. It's just everywhere I go, I seem to be making, uh, just, just falling short of what God expects of me. And it's burdensome. So then it's almost like I can't do it. I mean, if you're a true believer, if you're a true disciple, if you truly are part of the kingdom, I bet you have felt the weight. How would I do it? I, I want to honor God. I want to worship Him. I want to live for Him. I want to serve Him. I want to do it. But it's just too difficult. My workplace is difficult. My neighbors are difficult. My friends are difficult. They make it difficult. I am difficult. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil that the wicked, the unholy nexus is after me. But can I live for the kingdom? Can I truly be the salt? Can I truly be the light? Not in my own strength. Not in my own strength. I do not have the ability. I do not have the resources within me. I mean, if it was for me, I would have failed and gone and be done long ago. That is why we have chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. This comes as a comfort. This comes as an encouragement. This comes as a, as a balm for our souls that have been weary and heavy laden, have been burdened. I mean, I want to serve God. I truly want to honor Him. I truly want to worship Him. But I seem to fail all the time. I just don't have the strength in me. Of course you don't have the strength in you. So what must you do? What must I do? Come to Him, verse 7. Ask. Jesus is not talking about ask for a new car. He's not talking about BMWs here. He's not talking about a massive house. 
He's not talking about money, wealth, prosperity, health. He's not talking about big things that the world sees, the prosperity, the materialism that the people in America want, people in India want, people in Africa want. What is Jesus saying? Ask, seek, knock, the very things that he's talked about just now. That is why context matters. Context is the key. Ask and it will be given to you. And there's a, we, we, we're not being suggested. It's not a humble suggestion. It's a command. It's an imperative. Come on. Come on, you who are kingdom people. Come who you are part of the kingdom already. You who belong to me, my children. You must ask. I love it. Every time I look at this thing, it's, it's ask and seek and knock. I mean, it's, it's in a sense, it's the same thing, but slightly different. You ask because you're very clear, Lord, Lord, I've struggled with lust. Help me overcome this, Lord. Lord, I find it faithful. I find it difficult to, to carry on in my marriage. Lord, help me, Lord. Lord, I can't forgive that person. It's very difficult for me to forget the way he's treated me. I feel I've been wronged. Help me, Lord. I mean, these are the things that God wants us to pray for, to ask him, to ask his strength, and to seek his face. Lord, what are the areas in my life that you want me to grow? What are the areas in my, in my what are the things that, that I must mature in? Lord, please make it clear to me. Lord, I want to seek your face. I want to know your will. And I knock at his door again and again. Lord, have mercy. It's a continuous thing. We do not give up. We come to him again and again and again in spirit and in our prayers. So you're driving, you're praying. You're going to bed, you're praying. I mean, it's, this is Christian life. This is the life of a disciple. This is what you must and I do because we are dependent on him. It shows, it shows humility. It shows our inability. It shows that we are not the ones who can do it. We cannot pull it off. Self-help won't work. His help is what will carry us till the end. So we need him. So we seek him. We knock at his door. We ask him again and again and say, Lord, supply our needs, our spiritual needs and our daily physical needs. That's exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, chapter um, Chapter 6, verses 9 onwards to verse 13. That's what he taught them, to seek the kingdom of God, to make sure that God's name is hallowed and that he would provide a basic needs. So there's a, there these imperatives, ask, knock, and seek. It's very similar to what we see in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 29, verse 3. You shall seek and you will find me. I mean, God of the Bible is not elusive. He's not playing hide and seek with us. But he surely does delight in, in, in hearing the prayers of his children. You know, those of us, I, I, the more I reflect on Scripture, and ever since I've, I've got married and I've started having, uh, chil having children, a lot of biblical truths just make so much more sense. You just think about the character of God, who is a father. I mean, I don't want to be a difficult father who, who, who turns away from my children, but 
It sure does give me a lot of joy, a lot of happiness when my kids come to me for the right things. And I think it's something similar going on here. So verse 7 onwards, come to him. I mean, you must ask, and it will be given to you. This is divine passive. The one who provides is God. Ask, it's not that it will happen on its own. It's not positive confession. It is not word of faith thing. This is you ask, and God gives. You seek, and God provides. You knock, and he opens. He is the one who does it. He is an amazing, kind God. And then in verse, you know, so there's, there's imperative but to ask and to knock and to seek, but there's promise. Of course you will get it. You will get it. It's guaranteed. The answer, he will, he will respond to you. It's not that you just keep on knocking, keep on knocking, and there's no response. No, he will respond. Verse 8, it says, because everyone without expectation Without exception, everyone. I mean, whatever stage of life you are in, whatever community, whatever background you're from, it doesn't matter whatever part of the world you are in. I mean, for, for God, you know, the time zone doesn't work for him. He's beyond that. For everyone who asks, receives. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful promise. What an assurance. In a sense, effectively, we have a blank check here. I mean, you just come to him. But you must ask for right things. You must ask for right things. You must ask for things that truly give him pleasure. He'd be delighted to provide you with. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. Verse 8. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And there's no doubt about it. So do you feel, do you feel burdened? Do you feel that that the life of a disciple is difficult? Do you think that, do you feel that you cannot carry on on your own and you, you feel it right? I mean, if you think Christian life is easy, then you got it wrong. It's something, it's not the Christian life, it's something else. If you're, if you're truly living the life of a disciple, it is hard. And what do you do? What do I do? We go to the King. We go to the Father. We pray to Him. We seek His face. For various things in the life, various aspects, various, from little things to big things, in moments of crisis, when we are having an emotional breakdown, to when things are normal, when we have a happy normal day, an average Sunday afternoon when you are relaxed and everything seems to be fine, even then we go to Him. We are in a spirit of prayer and a spirit of dependence. It's an attitude. This is what we are, Lord. Every waking moment of my life, Lord, I depend on you. Lord, please keep me. And these verses, verse 9, are just beautiful. I mean, uh, there's an illustration being given. There's an, there's, an, um, uh, there's an argument being made from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, well, do not know which one of you. Which one of you? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Which one of you? If a son asks for bread, you'll give them a stone. I mean, I don't think I've met any father like that. I don't think I've ever met parents like that. But then if he asks for fish, you'll give him serpent? Can you imagine that? I mean, we know fathers, uh, earthly fathers can be terrible. And sometimes they do not portray the right 
picture of who the Heavenly Father is. But I can't imagine. I, I'm, I'm going back soon next, next week, early next week, back home. And I know the first thing my kids will do is they'll say, hi, dad, hello, dad, give me a big hug. They'll want to look into my bags. <laughs> they want to see what I've got for them. Imagine I travel back and give them stones and give them snakes. I know my heart. I'm a terrible person, saved by grace. I'm a wretched sinner. The Lord has changed my heart. I, but I know that I would never do that to my children or to, to anybody else's children. That's precisely what Jesus is trying to say to us. Do you know what the devil wants to do? He, he whispers in our ears. He wants us to doubt God's goodness. He wants us to say, God doesn't really care for you. I mean, he says he's with you, but not really. I mean, you are on your own. You've got to work it out. You've got to work hard. You have to do it. And Jesus wants to say, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Come on. Look at yourselves. You who are evil, verse 11. If you who are evil, of course, you, of course, and because of depravity, a sinfulness, yet we give good gifts to our children. How much more your father, God is our father. Chapter 6, verse 9, our father in heaven. He is our father. We have a relationship with him through this king, Jesus Christ. The one who has ushered in this kingdom. The one who is talking about these kingdom principles. The one who is teaching his people about the kingdom. We know this father. We have a relationship with him. We know him intimately. He's close to us. And if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father who is in heaven is not like many earthly fathers who abdicate their responsibility whose hearts are wretched, who would not do things for the children. I mean, it's beautiful. God is a father. And he will never let us down. He will never abandon us. He will be with us. He, he loves us. He is. He will help you in the time of trouble. But the thing is, you've got to reach out. You've got to speak to him. You've got to pray, you know, to trust in his word. Jesus says, he, will, who he who is in heaven, regardless of what happens, whatever government comes, whatever situation comes, whatever problems, sicknesses, trouble, tribulations, it doesn't matter. He is in heaven. His seat, his throne in heaven is secure. Political changes will not affect this king. The father is the father forever and ever. And therefore we have access to him because of his son. So what do we do? We come to him, and he will give us good things, those who ask him. We must ask him. We must trust. We must come to him. We, must. we have been granted access through his son, Jesus Christ. He came for this very reason. He lived a, purpose, a perfect life in my place and in your place. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sins and, and the sins of those who will trust in him. He was, rose, he was buried and rose again on the third day. He's seated on the right hand of the Father. From there, he intercedes for you and me so that you and I can 
can come to the Father. We have access to the Father. This is one of the best things of being a Christian. It's a beautiful truth. It is amazing. I mean, it is, it is the most encouraging truth that we can hold on to. God, our Father, hears us through His Son. So what do we do? We ask. We do not go to the world. We do not seek help from the world, but we go to Him directly. We do not need a middleman. We can go to Him. What a beautiful, beautiful truth to dwell on. You know, this Father who is who, who is transcendent, but he is eminent. He is there, but he is with us in his spirit, and we must trust in him. He will provide all the good things that we need. He will provide everything that is good for us. You know, just a quick reminder from James. James chapter 4 tells us, You ask and you do not receive because you, wrong, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The point is, you and I must seek the kingdom of God. You and I must seek things that are good things. Of course, our basic material needs. Yes, our daily provision. Yes, we ask him for those. But more than that, the kingdom principles. So my prayer for you this morning is, if you're a new person, if you've, for the first time you've come here, I pray that you have a relationship with this Father through the Son. And that can happen only through Jesus Christ by turning to him, by repenting, by turning away, by turning to this king, by submitting to this king. And I pray that you do this this morning. And you would have the joy of having access to this father 24-7, any time. You do not need an appointment at a specific day, time. My kids come to me any time when they need to because they know I am their father. You will have access to the father through the son. And if you already believe in the Father and you believe, you trust in the Son, I pray that you're not, uh, you're not in the midst of giving up. When things are difficult, when things are hard, when you, when you are struggling in your Christian spiritual life, in, your, in the life of discipleship, I pray that you come to Him again and again. And you encourage one another in the body. And together as a body of believers, keep encouraging one another. And keep urging one another, hey, let's go. Ask, let's go. Seek, let's go. Knock, so that he will provide us all the good things that we need to be a, a disciple, to be the salt, to be the light, to honor him, to glorify him for his namesake, for his glory. Let's pray.